Hello, and this is The Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so much for giving the show a download and a listen this week. Cannot begin to tell you how much I appreciate it. Breast cancer. That is what we're talking about this week, specifically the foods that not only lower the risk of developing the disease, but the foods that can also increase the chance of survival for the 266,000 women who will be diagnosed with it this year alone in the U.S. 266,000. That's one out of every eight women in this country. Our mothers, our daughters, our sisters, our friends, our neighbors, breast cancer does not discriminate, not even against men. You know, it's often overlooked, but on average, more than one man will die from breast cancer every single day in the United States. So what should we be eating to bring those alarming numbers down? What should we be doing? More importantly, what should we be avoiding? Well, over the course of the next hour, we're going to find out as I sit down with Dr. Neil Barnard. You know him. He's the head of the Physicians Committee. And I'm also going to chat with Dr. Asha Subramanian. She's going to be talking about breast cancer from not only the perspective of a physician, but also from the perspective of a woman and being a mother herself. But we're going to start with Dr. Barnard. And what you're going to hear is actually from a special Facebook Live broadcast that we did recently. He's going to share how a recent flight got him to re-examine the way that he views breast cancer awareness. Listen now, it is critically important that we continue to search for a cure. There is no denying that, no question about that whatsoever. But Dr. Barnard says that there also needs to be an increased emphasis on preventing the disease. It's as important, if not more so, because studies have shown that many of the nearly 41,000 lives that will be lost this year to breast cancer could have been saved through diet and lifestyle intervention. And that is what this show is all about. Here now, my conversation with Dr. Neil Barnard on The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Welcome to a very special Facebook live broadcast of the exam room brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, joined by Dr. Neil Barnard today. Thank you for coming on the program. I wouldn't miss it. Thank you, Chuck. You know, Dr. Barnard, this is October. And that means that it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and more than a quarter million women in the United States alone will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, according to estimates. Everywhere you turn this month, you see pink ribbons, you see uh, walks, you see t-shirts, you see everything that is pink. I think that you refer to it as pink washing. But in speaking to you and some others around the office, I think that there's an opportunity here to maybe rethink the way that we're approaching October and taking it beyond just awareness. You want to turn this into a prevention month, correct? Really, yes. And and the term pinkwashing isn't one that I invented. Um, breast cancer advocates have saying, why do we just want to be aware of it? 
We want to stop this disease. That's the idea. We want to prevent it, and if a person has it, we want them to survive it. And it's not just a question of feeling good and wearing pink scuffies and walking around. We've got to really do something serious. I've got to tell you, Chuck, this was really illustrated to me in a big way. I was on a flight not too long ago. I was on Delta, mm-hmm. and they bumped me up to first class. Hey. I, thought, well, I thought, well, thank you. That's very nice. <laughs> and when I took my first class seat, they gave me a menu. And here's my menu. Here okay. it is. Um, I open it up. October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. There's the pink ribbon. I thought, well, that's socially conscious of them. But then I turned the next page. And when I could see what they have for breakfast, it's prosciutto cotto with egg and some parmesan. Wait a minute. Prosciutto, that's ham. Right. That's a processed meat. Processed meats are clearly linked to breast cancer as well as colorectal cancer, other forms of the disease. And then they have a breakfast bread pudding. Okay, except wait a minute. It's got bacon on it. Bacon... That's another processed meat, Mm. uh, also linked to breast cancer. And then you turn the page, and there's every kind of alcohol you could ever want, which is also linked to breast cancer. And nowhere in here does it say anything about these things causing the very disease they want you to be so-called aware of. So I have to say Breast Cancer Awareness Month has made people more unaware by this kind of pinkwashing. Every company wants to sell something saying it's pink. And part of the problem is that when you go back in time, where did Breast Cancer Awareness Month start? It started with a company called ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries. They make drugs for treating breast cancer. Okay. And the initial idea was you want to be aware that you've got it, get your mammography now so that they could sell more medication. Would that be the issue? Um, And so I saw the press kits at that time. There was nothing about preventing it, nothing a woman could do to stop this disease from taking over her life. Mm. It was all find it, treat it, find it, treat it, find it, treat it. And there is clearly an important role for treatment. There's no question about that. But the most important thing is to see what we can do to reduce our risk. Use the word awareness. And now you've got me thinking it's, yes, we are very much aware that one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, more than 12% of the population. If it's awareness month, doesn't that kind of make you think that people are just thinking that you know it's it's inevitable that i will get this disease especially women who have that strong genetic link to it their mother had it their grandmother had it their sisters their aunts at that point they have to have that sense of inevitability but from what you're saying by watching what you eat watching certain foods you can lower that risk significantly. Yeah, there, there are genes that do increase the risk. But the thing that we can change is we can change what's on our plate. We can lace up our sneakers. There are things that we can do. And maybe thing one that emerged way back decades ago, Ernst Winder from the American Health Foundation happened to compare women in Japan from women in the United States. Mm-hmm. They were much less likely to get breast cancer in Japan. I'm talking about prior to westernization, before McDonald's arrived in Tokyo. Sure. Um, they, were, they were less likely to get, to, to get breast cancer. If they got breast cancer, they were much more likely to survive it. Right. And the question is, what's that about? Well, the first thing was Japanese women were slimmer. And we've known for a long time that body fat makes estrogens, the female sex hormones. Those, in turn, can drive cancer. Um, and if a woman has cancer already, they can increase the likelihood that the cancer will progress. Um, Japanese women were slimmer than, than American women. Maybe that was the whole deal. Uh, but that was just the start of it. Sure. Um, that got researchers looking at the dietary patterns. What was different about that diet? What were they avoiding that American women were eating? What were they including that maybe we were 
neglecting over here. And, and since that time, there's been a lot of research, and there are, are certainly lessons that we can put to work in our own lives. So what, what are some of those foods? I mean, you, you mentioned that there is a very strong link between processed meats and, and breast cancer. Well, cancer in general. The World Health Organization has classified processed meat as a, a class one carcinogen. Is that yes. the, the big thing that we should all be looking um, out for well, here? That's, th- yes, that's by no means the whole picture, but that's the one where the jury has come in and pronounced you know guilty okay. and the judge has uh, read the sentence and so forth. Um, meats in general and an, uh, a Western diet in general mm-hmm. increases the risk. Uh, there, there are a number of bad actors. The processed meats, that's, that's hot dogs, bacon, ham, sausage, and so forth, clearly. But I, I would indict animal products, generally speaking, speaking, including dairy products, and the foods that are particular, oh, oh, and also alcohol. Right. Remind, let's make sure we come back to that. Um, and foods that are protective. We want to have vegetables and fruits and whole grains and beans. And there's a special notation for soy products. And that's important because if you go online and you look, will soy products increase the risk or decrease the risk? I'm talking about tofu. Okay. Or soy milk or tempeh or miso soup or whatever. Uh, years ago, people raised the alarm and they said there are hormone-like substances in soy called isoflavones, um, and maybe they would increase the risk of breast cancer. I'm happy to tell you we have had more than enough time to study this, and the result is very clear, mm-hmm. that the women who consume the most soy products, I'm talking about more, more soy milk, more tofu, whatever, the women who consume the most soy have about 30% less breast cancer than the women who tend who neglect soy. Interesting. In other words, it's the opposite uh, of what people might have thought. Soy is a cancer preventive. And then researchers have looked in at least five different studies at women who have cancer already. And the women who consume the most soy have about, again, about a 30% reduction in the likelihood of dying of their cancer. Hmm. So you don't have to have soy. A plant-based diet is not the soy cheerleading club, but uh, it's a cancer preventer. It helps reduce cancer risk quite substantially. Well, those are statistically significant numbers. Why do you think oh, that, yes. that that myth still prevails today? Well, I don't know, but I found myself wondering if maybe the dairy industry would like you to not buy soy milk. And, <laughs> and You know, you, you wonder why, does the, why do these things kind of proliferate on the internet? when they're, they're clearly not true. Um, and and it, it's not even an open question. There has been so much research specifically on soy products, so many different studies uh, looking at, at very wide ranges of soy intake. The women who do the worst are the women who don't have soy products in their diets at all. Now, part of that is because if you're not having the soy burger, you're probably having the beef burger. Right. Uh, but the soy itself does seem to be protective. Uh, I, I, once again, you don't have to have soy, but it uh, it's very convenient. You know, they make soy milk, soy burgers, uh, soy sausage that's always better than the other. One day they'll make snow tires out of it probably. It's, <laughs> it's so, so versatile. Uh, you don't have to have it, but uh, – but it, but it does not cause cancer if anything is protective. That's soy. Very durable. Goodyear investing in it, making <laughs> exactly. those tires. Um, I want to dive into to dairy a little bit more because that's that's another one, not just with breast cancer, but that is the focus of the show. But dairy seems to be very, um, uh, very much a factor in the risk of developing cancer in general as well. Breast cancer, no different here. So, I mean, I'm talking fluid milk and cheese. All of that falls under the same umbrella. Keep in mind, um, breast cancer is a hormone-related cancer. 
So estrogens in a woman's body can drive this cancer. Uh, researchers have looked at many different data sets and many different studies. And if you just draw a blood sample, the higher a woman's estrogen level is, the higher her risk of breast cancer. If you drink milk, what you're drinking is the hormones that came out of a cow. Right. Uh, that cow was pregnant. Right. The, you know, the cows are impregnated, as you and I have discussed in past shows. The, the dairy cows are impregnated every year. They're pregnant for nine months, and then at the end of 12, they're impregnated again. A pregnant cow makes estrogen, and you're just drinking their estrogen and adding it to your own. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not very much. It's only traces uh, of hormones in the milk. Right. However, they're concentrated in cheese, and researchers in California did a very frightening study. They looked at women who had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and they then tracked, how about the women who consume more high-fat dairy? I'm talking about butter and cheese. The women who, who consumed more than a serving a day of high-fat dairy products had a 49% higher risk of dying of their breast cancer compared to the women who tended to avoid the high-fat dairy. Wow. So what we think is happening is... Your body already has all the estrogens Mother Nature had in mind for you. Sure. And if you drip in a little bit more in cheese and in yogurt and in milk, keep in mind you're getting cow's estrogens. Um, it's going to add to your own. And if you mix estrogens and breast cancer cells in a test tube, mm -hmm. they grow. Hmm. They proliferate. You don't want that happening in your body. Uh, let me ask. Th this may be kind of a, a stupid question, but forgive me. I, I don't have that, that doctorate. Is this a, cumul a cumulative thing? You, you just mentioned that there are only trace amounts that you find in milk, and a little bit more concentrated in cheese. But over time, if you keep eating it and eating it and drinking more and more milk, that then cumulatively will increase your risk? Very likely so. Um, and an analogy would be with cigarettes. You know, some people might have started smoking when they're 18, 19, 20. They're not getting lung cancer at that age. Um, but time goes by and the risk grows and grows and grows and grows. And the same is true with food. Uh, with colorectal cancer, you're eating beef and meats in general and you're avoiding the, the high fiber foods and what you're setting yourself up for, for colorectal cancer that gradually increases over time. We believe the same is true with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, there, I mean, there are other things that contribute as well. Birth control pills very, very slightly will increase the risk depending on the formulation. If a woman is using them, she should use the lowest estrogen dose that she can get because the, the risk will gradually increase. Same with hormone replacement. Um, when a woman after menopause might be taking hormone replacement medication to deal with hot flashes, for example, um, clearly linked with um, breast cancer risk if it's this very common combination uh, hormone replacement mm -hmm. that's an estrogen and a progestin. So um, we, want to, we would encourage people to stay away from to anything that augments hormonal effects in their body. Let's uh, go back to what you were talking about, a woman who has already been diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And from what it was that you were just saying, she really can improve her odds by cleaning yes. up her diet. I mean, just to kind of put that mildly out there. Talk to me about the the odds of survival, their survival chances for someone who adopts a plant-based diet versus someone who continues eating that okay. standard American diet. All right, great. Um, we already talked about soy. So soy will, will improve the survival odds by about 30%. Mm -hmm. that, that's just from including the soy products. There was a, a really well-done study called the Women's, Inter, uh, Women's Intervention Nutrition Study, WINS, W-I-N-S. Uh, all the participants 
nearly 3,000 were women who had breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And the test was, what if we cut out fatty foods to a degree? They didn't get all the way to plant-based, but they reduced fatty foods substantially. And what they found was that it reduced the risk of any kind of cancer recurrence quite substantially. Um, a follow-up study then said, wait, wait, let's do the opposite. Instead of cutting out fatty foods, let's boost our uh, vegetables and fruits. And what they shown, showed was really quite interesting. Um, they asked women to increase, one group of women to increase vegetables and fruits five servings a day. Another group, eight servings a day. And the researchers found it didn't really make any difference if it was five a day or eight a day. But what they did find was that when you compared the women who really did it, mm -hmm. um, what you found was interesting. Those women who really consumed a lot of vegetables and fruits and who exercised as well, they laced up their sneakers, they got some aerobic exercise, their risk of recurrence of their cancer over several years was about 5%. Those women who neglected their vegetables and fruits even if they were exercising, their risk of dying of their cancer was about double, wow. about 10%. Those women who, did, uh, who also neglected exercise but ate a more or less healthy diet, they didn't do so well either. The combination of exercise and a healthy diet seemed to help. The women who did the worst, those who neglected their vegetables and fruits, and were couch potatoes. Mm. Um, their risk of mortality was about 11 or 12%. Mm. Um, so it, w what we believe is that a diet rich in vegetables and fruits, whole grains and beans, getting away from the animal products, reduces the likelihood that the cancer will start. But if a woman has cancer, it will reduce the likelihood that that cancer will affect her life. Are we able to quantify in percentages the uh, amount that a woman is able to reduce her risk of developing breast cancer by eating that plant-based diet, eliminating meat and dairy? You know, the short answer is I, I don't think we could give an overall number because there are different kinds of cancer and women are at different genetic risks. Mm -hmm. And and the estimates that people will will give will range anywhere from 10 to 20% up to 80% difference in your likelihood of developing cancer or not. Um, but I think that whatever genetic risk a, a woman may have, whether she's got cancer all up and down her family tree or she doesn't have it, um, we have to realize that, that we are all, are all at risk. Most women who are diagnosed with breast cancer didn't have a family history. Right. It just came and hit them. Um, so we all want to make these same kinds of changes. Um, let me mention two other things that tend to get neglected. One, sure. is, al one is alcohol. Um, alcohol may reduce the risk of heart disease. Some studies have suggested it might reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. That's not sure, but studies have suggested it. We're talking red wine? Uh, probably that's the one that gets the most press. Okay. But when it comes to breast cancer, the opposite. Um, one drink a day, just one, if it's every day, will measurably increase the risk of cancer. And if it's two drinks, three drinks, it goes up and up and up and up. Um, with regard to sunlight, this is a, a new and surprising thing. You wouldn't think of sunlight as having anything to do with breast health. Right. Uh, when sunlight hits your skin... It forms vitamin D. And vitamin D is mostly known for helping your body to absorb calcium. That's, that's its big job. Right. Your, the sunlight hits your skin. Vitamin D is formed. That vitamin D will pull calcium from your digestive tract in, in, into your bloodstream where, so you can use it. Vitamin D is also a cancer preventer. No kidding. Yes, it is. And a new study came out looking at breast cancer uh, with it 
uh, women with various levels of vitamin D in their blood. So you take somebody who lives in Miami and they're getting sun all the time. They've got a lot of, a lot of vitamin D or maybe they're taking a vitamin D supplement. You contrast her with a woman who lives in Fargo, North Dakota in February where there's no, no sun and she's not getting much vitamin D. The difference in breast cancer risk is quite substantial. Um, so vitamin D is a good thing and what I would recommend is that we get some sunlight have a good brisk walk when you're eating when you're on a good brisk walk you can't eat ice cream anyway right so it's a good thing for you to do you're getting the value of exercise and if the sun touches your face and your arms that that's pretty much what you need and in about 20 minutes you'll have the vitamin d that you need and it it will help strengthen your bones and reduce the risk of breast cancer you know what i would suggest there is just taking that little stroll during your lunch break you know Helps clear your head anyway, yeah. gets you ready for the afternoon back at the J-O-B, and you're getting exactly. your vitamin D fix. Exactly. And if a woman c- simply cannot um, get sunlight, either you're using a sunblocker all the time or it's just too darn cold or it's inclement weather or you live in Buffalo, New York, where there's never any sun. Yeah, yeah, um, Buffalo. Okay, sorry about that for anybody <laughs> in Buffalo. I meant to say Seattle. Um, um, then about two 2,000 international units of vitamin D a, a day will give you the vitamin D that you need. Gotcha. Um, real and, you can, and by the way, you can get tested. for You can t- get your vitamin D level tested. All doctors do it. It's very cheap and easy. If, if you're low, they can start a supplement. You can start a supplement and get retested a couple months later and see how you do. Uh, real quick before we start taking some questions, and I encourage you to post them below if you're watching on Facebook. If you're watching this or listening to this, I should say, next week uh, via Stitcher or Spotify, uh, then go ahead and tweet at PCRM, at Dr. Neil Barnard, or at Chuck Carroll WLC, and we will go ahead and address the question at a later date. But for now, go ahead and post your question below. Before we start taking those questions, I did want to ask a little bit about men because it, it gets overlooked, but nonetheless, a significant amount of men, I believe it's one in 1,000, will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Do these same principles of prevention apply to men as well? Yes, uh, they do. Um, in fact, if you go to the beach, summertime, there are men who have some breast development. It's a, a heavyset guy, um, and he's got a little bit of breast development and you might think well that's just body fat it isn't just body fat the fat cells cause male hormones to turn into female hormones Hmm. to a degree within a fat cell testosterone can be converted to estradiol and in a man's bloodstream if he has a little extra female sex hormone he'll have breast development and that's going to increase his risk of developing breast cancer interesting um Along the way, it's going to increase his risk of a lot of other things, um, like heart disease and hypertension and diabetes. And every, so there's every reason to switch to a healthier diet. Interesting. Again, uh, post your questions below, and uh, let's take our first one. It is from Janine. She asks, I've read that soy should only be consumed as tofu, tempeh, etc., and to avoid soy milk. Okay. Um, great question. First of all, thank you for asking. Um, there are... A variety of kinds of soy products, some of which are more processed, some less processed. Um, edamame, for example. What is it? It's a soybean. You haven't even taken it out of the pod. Right. All you did is steam it, totally unprocessed. Then you take them out a little bit. You may grind them up, turn them into tofu or tempeh. Uh, and with more and more processing, soy can turn into bacon. Um, or I mean, it does. Right. Um, in, so, in some cases, soy products are fermented. Uh, tempeh, for example cultures are used that cause a fermentation process and adds a little extra flavor, changes the texture just a little bit. So the question is, 
if I have these more processed types uh, versus unprocessed, does it make a difference? If I have the fermented versus the unfermented, does it make a difference? The surprising answer is it does not make much difference. Hmm. Um, I would always encourage people to have foods as natural as possible, but even the fairly processed ones like, say, soy milk or something, um, it's also a cancer preventer. Hmm. Next question comes from Carrie. Oh, and by the way, oh. if you're having soy milk, you are not having cow's milk on your cornflakes. So it's it's partly what it's doing for you and partly what it's huh. the exposure I, that you're avoiding. I call that a double benefit. That, it's what you that, get and what you don't get at the same time. That's it. That's a twofer, sir. Uh, Carrie asks, does soy, meaning organic tofu and soy milk, contribute to thyroid issues? Ah, great question. Okay. Um, the thyroid is gland right here at the bottom of your neck, and it regulates your metabolism. And so some people have wondered, could soy products, could foods in general affect the thyroid? Um, I think that the bottom line here is not to worry, uh, with really one exception. Um, the, the reason not to worry is soy products don't, don't – if you look in Japan, for example, where people consume a huge amount of soy, it, they don't seem to have a higher risk of thyroid problems than other people. And domestically, the same is true with soy consumers versus those who, who don't. Um, the one exception I'm going to have is if you take uh, thyroid replacement medication, lots and lots and lots of foods interfere with the absorption of that medication. Hmm. So if you're having your smoothie at the same time as you take your thyroid medication, you're not going to absorb it very well and you're going to get hypothyroid. Take the th medication on an empty stomach. And that's not unique to soy. That's pretty much any kind of food. So take the medication on an empty stomach. Uh, also, some have suggested that if a person is already very borderline low on thyroid, particularly if they are low in iodine, Hmm. I, your, your, your thyroid needs iodine? Yeah. For those people, dietary indiscretions might push them more toward hypothyroidism. The answer here is not to avoid soy. The answer is to make sure you get plenty of iodine. Two sources, regular salt, iodized salt. And if you're keeping salt low for good reasons, uh, sea plants. I'm talking about the wakame that's in your miso soup uh -huh. or the nori that's wrapped around your vegan sushi. Uh, those are going to give you plenty of iodine. Wakame. And, the, and, and they will protect your... Uh, your thyroid. That's a fun word to say, isn't it? It's, it's even funner to eat it, I got to tell you. As a kid who grew up in North Dakota and never had miso soup in my life, once I discovered how delicious Japanese food is, I love it. Yeah, your life is a little bit more rich for having miso soup. I remember I didn't have it. I grew up in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and I didn't have it until I moved up here. I was well into my teens. And right. My life literally changed that day, Dr. Yep. Barner. Literally changed. It's a healthy food. It is indeed. Uh, Brenda writes... What do you think about cooking with wines? Well, from the alcohol standpoint, which I imagine what you're thinking of is alcohol increases the risk of breast cancer. Would cooking with wine add to the problem? The answer is you'll probably be fine because the alcohol cooks off and it just leaves the, the flavor. Gotcha. Uh, Arvnid asks, can you comment on the best method to get omega-3s on a plant-based diet? Does that have any correlation with breast cancer risk? Okay, great question. Uh, people think of omega-3 as coming from fish in some cases. Fish do have some omega-3, although most of the fat in fish is not omega-3. So fish on balance don't improve health compared mm -hmm. to a plant-based diet. Uh, by that, I mean they don't help people with body weight. They don't help people with diabetes and, and so forth. And, and a vegan is going to have the lowest risk of these things. Adding fish doesn't help. Um, but you could get omega-3s from uh, 
I guess people are, are pretty well aware of things like flax that have a lot of omega-3. But there's traces even in green leafy vegetables. Your body takes that omega-3 and it lengthens the molecule to match the same one that you get from fish. Interesting. Now, if you eat a lot of fried stuff with a lot of oil that gets into your diet, that oil will slow down that lengthening process. So have a lot of green leafy vegetables, have your walnuts, uh, don't have a lot of other oils that will interfere with it. We just did a show about cooking without uh, oil, and uh, we had Drina Burton on the show. Oh, a wonderful show. Yes, I mean, I wonderful love Drina. Woman. Um, if you haven't heard the episode, I highly recommend hop on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you can get your audio from. Go look up the exam room by the Physicians Committee and check out the Cooking Without Oil episode. Um, my question for you is this, is has there been any studies that look at the link between oils specifically and breast cancer? Hmm. Great question. There may have been. What's really coming to my mind is there was a study at this years ago at the State University of New York where they wanted to look at survival. There, it was a, lot, a lot, very large group of women. They all had a breast cancer diagnosis. And, of course, the question in their mind is, will my cancer ever come back? I hope it doesn't. And they looked at all fats put together. This could be vegetable oils, animal fats, all of them. And they showed that the risk of, of dying of breast cancer was directly related to total fat intake. Hmm. Um, so I'm going to suggest that animal fat's a big actor, but adding a lot of oil to your diet could, could be a contributor too. Um, certainly vegetable oils, for the most part, are healthier than animal fats. They're right. less saturated fat, but, I, but they contribute to weight gain. That, in turn, contributes to the estrogen production. Um, and the increased risk was quite substantial. Kind of an overall theme then, basically. If you got oil in the diet, higher fat. Higher fat leads to, you know, it's just linked to all sorts of things. According to the best research right. that we have. Right. I, and now, I'm not suggesting that people be on a zero oil diet because mm-hmm. there are natural traces of oil in foods that you eat. If you, if you took a bean and sent it to the laboratory, they would tell you there are traces of natural oils in the beans. Sure. The same is true with broccoli or other green vegetables, there are traces of oils and fruits. Um, those are healthy, and your body needs those. It's that extra oil where you go glug, 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 all over your pasta, sure. all over your salad, and we're getting more oil than we need. Uh, Ellen is asking about the link between diabetes and breast cancer. She says, do you have any tips for reducing blood sugar? I'm a diabetic and still can't get my blood sugar under control, even after going plant-based. She says oatmeal raised it to 200. Okay. Um, if a person, first of all, it's a great question, and you are not alone. There are many other people who have the same issue. Um, when a person uh, has diabetes, if it, assuming this is type 2 diabetes, mm. um, the issue is going to be the cells are resistant to insulin. Uh, insulin is trying to get that sugar out of the blood. It's trying to push it into the muscle cells, push it into the liver cells, and insulin is having trouble doing that. Um, three steps that we take. You've already taken the first one, which is great, plant-based. Get away from all the animal products and get away from them completely. The second step is now you want to keep oils to a bare minimum. The combination of avoiding animal products and avoiding oils does something really important. It starts to diminish the amount of fat inside the cells. And as the cells get rid of that fat that's inside, insulin starts to work again. It starts to work better. So you've got to get away from the animal fats. That's most important. Get away from the plant oils, too. Um, so if your idea of breakfast, not yours, but when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. my idea of lunch was like 
peanut butter in a spoon, you know. Been and, there, and, man. Yeah. Well, <laughs> don't do that. We want to keep oils really low. But I've got a third step, too. While you are insulin resistant, just about any carbohydrate you eat, like oatmeal, will make your blood sugar rise a bit. That's not necessarily terrible um, because very gradually, the, as the fat diminishes in the cells, your blood sugar will come down. But I would encourage you to use the glycemic index in choosing your food. Here's what I mean. White bread makes your blood sugar rise pretty steeply. Rye bread, more gently. Uh, pumpernickel, even more gently. So white bread is a high glycemic index food. Pumpernickel is a low glycemic index food. And many foods uh, can, be, can be categorized uh, as low or high. And the best choices are things like, I mentioned pumpernickel bread is a good choice, but also beans are terrific for this. Fruits, surprisingly enough, even though they're sweet, are generally low glycemic index, so you can include those. Uh, but grains, particularly the more processed they are, tend to be higher uh, in the GI. Uh, final question here is going to come from Jesse, uh, who just basically had a dermatology question. We're just going to throw this in there. I think that it's something that people will be wondering about anyway. Uh, Jesse writes, what foods can help clear my skin? Is water really important in a plant-based diet? And I'll take it a step further. Uh, how, what role does water play in, in terms of overall health and, and maybe lowering the risk of developing disease? Water's a good thing. Um, I think some people get dehydrated and they may not be aware that they're dehydrated and if they bring more, more water into their diet, it's a good thing. That said, you sometimes hear people say you should have eight glasses, eight, eight ounce glasses of water every day. Personally, I don't think you need to do that because if you're having an apple or an orange or a papaya or a pear, there's water in these foods. And hopefully a lot of your needs for, for hydration will come from the foods themselves. Um, if what you're having is a slab of cheese, well, there's no water in there. <laughs> there's nothing else in there that's, that's really helpful either. So, gotcha. So. Um, By the way, um, let me say uh, a, a, a quick word. Um, there is a new book on tackling acne by the Nelson sisters. Um, this is Jeff Nelson's daughters. He, the, he began VegSource. And um, take a look at this. It's, um, it's, it, you'll see it on Amazon, and it's a new way to tackle, tackle acne. Plant-based, healthy, low-oil, healthy diet. Well, you know, speaking of new books, that just brings me right to our final point, is that uh, just around the corner here, right in time for the holidays, my friend, you have another book coming out called The Vegan Starter Kit. And I think that this is particularly could be very important for people who are worried about their risk of breast cancer. Maybe it does really run strongly in their family, and it, it just weighs heavily on their mind. And now they hear this message that a plant-based diet can lower their risk of developing a disease, but they may be wondering, hey, how do I get going on it? Yes. Perhaps this book, The Vegan Starter Kit, can help. That's, that was the reason I wrote it, is that for many people, they're intrigued and they want to know how to begin, but they don't necessarily want to get um, – well, I have to tell you, I've written a lot of books, and each one is as big as a sofa, and it's this huge big thing that requires a bit of a commitment for some folks. Right. I decided to write a real, one that you can read in less than an hour and will give you everything you need to start a really healthy vegan diet. So The Vegan Starter Kit uh, is coming out December 24th. 2018. I hope people will pick it up. But the other reason I wrote it is there are a lot of people who ha who want to share this message with other people. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping more than anything else that people will buy it for other people that they care about. Um, 
and it'll be a good introduction on how to get started. Well, I think that this is a, a wonderful gift idea. And I was speaking with our producer, Laura, uh, just before we began rolling here today. And I was saying, you know what? This would be the perfect airport read. You know, you go in there mm. and you're looking for an easy read that you can have while you're bouncing from east to west coast. And you say you can plow through this in an hour. Certainly you can get that done between New York and Los Angeles. You could so. probably test out a couple of the recipes before you land. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, that, give it a try. You know, that's that's uh, that's exciting stuff. So we'll be talking more about this uh, as the date draws near December 24th, the Vegan Starter Camp. Well, but don't wait. It's on pre-order now. So buy 20 copies for yeah. one, one for you and one for 19 Yeah, friends. we'll put up a link to that Thank on org slash podcast for sure. Um Let's let's wrap this up with the overall theme here. Um, I think that the message here is that yes, there is a lot of pink washing, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. If awareness then can lead to awareness that a lot of these diagnoses are preventable. If our whole point of Breast Cancer Awareness Month is to make people raise money, give it to a lab, hoping that someone else will do something, that is a mistake. What we need to do is to realize that there's information that can save, that can, that can help save lives right now. We have enough information that we need to put it to work. And, and job one is to get on as healthy a diet as we can. For women who are concerned about developing breast cancer, uh, a diet change can be so uh, decisive in that regard. For women who have been diagnosed, it can be really important too. A word for guys, we are at risk too. Uh, for include not just breast cancer but many other forms of the disease and if your sister, mother, wife, girlfriend friend is changing her diet you got to change your diet too you got to be supportive so that everybody's on one kind of healthy diet together um, throw all the bad stuff out of the cupboards all the bad foods out of the refrigerator change the whole family and you're going to save everybody's life there you go Dr. Neil Barnard, thank you very much. This has been just always a joy. You bring such information and such hope and inspiration and knowledge to the table every time you're on the show. So thank you, my friend. Well, thank you, Chuck. Right back at you. You've inspired a lot of people with your tremendous success and with everything you're doing to get the word out. So thank you, Chuck. Really important message there from Dr. Barnard, huh? We have awareness. Now it's time to focus on prevention. Think about that. If we applied everything that we knew about the link between diet and disease and applied that to Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and we changed those menus on airplane flights, and we changed them in restaurants, and we did more than just wear pink t-shirts, think about all of the lives that we could be saving. Again, so critically important that we continue to put money toward finding a cure. But we need to also not lose focus and lose sight of the fact that so many of these cases are preventable. Changing gears now, I also had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Asha Subramanian this week. She is a phenomenal plant-based physician in the Washington, D.C. area. She is going to talk to you from not only the perspective of being a physician for many years, but also what's it like being a mother of a young daughter and knowing that that risk for breast cancer is ever so prevalent. One in every eight women. She's going to talk about that right now on The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. 
This is the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen today. A very important topic. Talking about an epidemic, not just in the U.S., but globally. And as a matter of fact, calling it an epidemic is a gross understatement. October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and to help discuss the signs, the symptoms, the lifestyle factors that go into it, we welcome back to the program Dr. Asha Supermanian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Chuck. Glad to be here. You know, uh, Dr. Supermanian, when I was pulling some statistics to do this show, I was just floored by what I saw. Because Everybody, you know, you turn, especially this month in October, you turn on the TV, it's nothing but pink ribbons and you hear about walks and uh, and marches and things like that. And it's just like a, a pink out, so to speak. You know, everybody's wearing pink and it's fantastic. And you're like, wow, you know, this is a big deal. But then you see these numbers on paper of just how many women are affected by breast cancer. And it's enough. Your jaw will hit the floor. Yes, one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer during her lifetime. Wow, one in eight. One in eight, about 12% or so, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. And such an important topic to have on your podcast. So thank you. Yeah. And, and this is one that you actually approached me, you know, and suggested, hey, why don't we do a show on this? And I maybe just fortuitous with October coming up, you said, let me shoot him the email. But thank you very much for suggesting it. You're um, welcome. B- because this is something that definitely um, needs to be discussed and, and discussed more. Um, one in eight. And the, the, the other statistic that I found that just, uh, again, shocked me. To quantify that, in 2018, this year alone, more than a quarter million women will be diagnosed, receive a new diagnosis. That's right. So you either it would be you if you're a listener that's female or your friends or your relatives or work colleagues, you will likely, unfortunately, know somebody quite soon that has this diagnosis. So this information is so important. Please let your friends and family and your colleagues know. One in eight. I I mean, yeah, friends, there's no way that I I just think it's inescapable. Um, Yeah. uh, And I I hate to be morbid. You know, this, this show is often so you know, fun, but let's let's just continue through these statistics and then we can talk about signs and symptoms and some preventative steps that we can take. absolutely. Um, But as far as the total number of mortalities every year, again, let's just stick to the U.S. The number that I saw is close to 41,000 alone this year. 41,000. Yes, that's correct. So you have 250-something thousand women being diagnosed and then about 20% of them are going to die of this disease, Mm. which is, again, unbelievable. And let's not forget the men. So one in eight is the risk numbers for women, but for men, it's one in a thousand. So there will be about 400 something deaths per this year, actually, um, among men who are diagnosed with breast cancer. 400 men? Mm -hmm. That's more than one a day. That's right. And that's not even really on anybody's radar. That's right. Uh, That's something that people do not know about. But I myself in my clinical career have seen several men be diagnosed with breast cancer. Thankfully, they're doing well. Wow. Is is the treatment course 
relatively the same for for male i mean um in some ways yes so, okay. some things are are quite similar um often um it's caught earlier in some ways because um men notice this because the breast tissue is not as large right. in that area and dense so men come in they say doc what's going on around my nipple area and you find the common symptoms a lump you can find a painful lump often, but doesn't have to be. It could be a painless lump. There could be skin changes like redness, irritation, dimpling. That's called peau d'orange is actually the word, the medical term for it, like skin of the orange. Mm. Um, You can also have nipple discharge. So, you know, if you're a lactating female, you should be producing milk, of course. But if you have a nipple discharge that's specifically persistent that is new um, or any of the symptoms I just mentioned, please go to your healthcare professional and get checked out. So, I I mean, I don't want to get too graphic, but when you talk about discharge, is it like a sticky substance or is it what are, what are we talking about there? Um, it could be blood um, or pus or even like a white fluid, um, something, things that should not be there in someone who's not producing milk. Gotcha. Something that should not be there. Um, what about as far as uh, race and, and getting back to the statistics there? Is there any one race that's more at risk for developing breast cancer than another? So when we look at the statistics, Chuck, um, we see that African-American women are at much higher risk to develop breast cancer earlier. Um, And when we look at the demographic information, we see that different groups of non-Caucasian women, such as African-American, Latina women, um, and Native American Asians, um, in general are at higher risk than Caucasian women. Now, Particularly with Latino women and African-American women, there are a variety of factors this could be from, you know, could it be social and health and racial disparities? Mm -hmm. So could it be lack of screening, lack of access to health care and primary care? Could it be lack of knowledge about what to look for, signs and symptoms of breast cancer? Um, Is it possible that um, the women are not getting the treatment once they're diagnosed? Um, You know, why, why are why is it so prevalent in these communities? Do they not have access to healthy um, parks and you know gyms and other places they can exercise? Healthy food, of course. Right. Um, so it's a whole um, set of factors. Also, exposures to chemicals, pesticides. We all know, unfortunately, over the years, there's been a lot of situations where hurricanes and other natural disasters come through, and we find out that people living in the most um, at-risk zones, in the zones that are contaminated are often people of color who are mm. non non Caucasians. So all this can play a part. Absolutely absolutely. I feel like that could be a whole other episode. You know, You're right. there's You're a right. lot to dive into there. That's a lot that you just put on the plate there. Um as far as screening and doing self exams, just as a refresher, what's best practice there? You know, we were all taught when I was in medical school not that long ago and, you know, prior to that, that um, we all should be talking about self-breast exam with our female patients and talking about it, you know, every year at the annual physical. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force actually does not recommend self-breast exam um, education. Now, a lot of doctors and healthcare professionals still talk about it with their patients, but it's not been found to improve um, 
early um, detection or mortality. So, and ca- and it also causes undue anxiety, um, apparently, and I can imagine why. So, right. as you can, so um, that's not something we actively talk about, at least if we follow the clinical guidelines. Sure, sure. Um, let's talk a little bit more about lifestyle. Um, and let's talk about how being overweight or somebody who's obese, am I correct in assuming that their risk of developing breast cancer would go up as it does with so many other chronic diseases? You're correct, Chuck. So it's very interesting because we think of being obese or overweight traditionally as, oh, the person, the man or woman carries extra weight. But actually that tissue, the adipose or fat tissue that the person carries is metabolically active. Hmm. So this is a whole new concept of adipose tissue being metabolically active. And one of the things that it produces um, is estrogen and other hormones. So the idea is if someone is overweight or obese, that their body is already having an extra source of estrogen production and estrogen dominance can lead to in, in women, the female reproductive issues and cancers. So, for example, um, breast cancer, of course, uterine cancer, endometrial cancer is the lining of the uterus, ovarian cancer, endometriosis, fibroids, um, you know, a lot of different a lot of different conditions, even um, cervical cancer as well. So, you know, very, very important that to know um, for our listeners that um, fat tissue, adipose tissue is metabolically active. So we do need to take steps to try to try to reverse that trend if possible. Let's talk about specific types of fats in the diet. How does animal fat affect the risk for breast cancer? I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that there has been some studies done mm-hmm. on this. Yeah, so the studies that um, I'm knowledgeable about and that I've seen um, do show a strong link between the intake of animal fat in the diet as in um, relation to cancer risk, to breast cancer risk in particular. Um, and there are other cancers that animal fat also increases, such as prostate cancer and, and even colorectal cancer. Um, so I would say that you know animal fat definitely is something that we need to look at with our patients. We need to talk about reducing, removing, if possible, animal um, sources of fat in the diet to prevent cancer as well as prevent reoccurrence of cancer in those patients who already have breast cancer as a diagnosis. An interesting point that I wanted to bring up here was that, uh, and I found this actually on PCRM.org, if you're interested in checking it out, I'll put up a link to this at PCRM.org slash podcast, uh, was a little blurb that we have on the website that talked about the Nurses Health Study 2. Are you familiar with this this study at all? Yes. Okay. According to this, and they were able to break it down, the risk of breast cancer uh, from animal fat versus vegetable fat, fat from vegetables, there was no discernible you know, um, well, basically, vegetable fat did not increase the risk of cancer, which is completely the opposite of animal fat. Right. Interesting. Right. So that study looked at um, a cohort. So you're looking at a, thousands of women um, in the nurses' health study moving forward and seeing do they develop a condition such as breast cancer in this case. So yes, in that case, it was shown that vegetable fat does not increase the risk of breast cancer. However, once a woman, or men, I would say, is diagnosed with breast cancer, then you really would like to reduce the 
amount of any fat in the diet as as low as possible, 10% of calories or less, because that will help prevent recurrence. And um, there have been studies addressing that. Um, so, do, do you know specifically why that that is? Like, what's the what's the link there? I don't know specifically. Um, I can certainly look into it and get back to you and your listeners. But um, I think one of the hypotheses are that you know once you have cancer, that your cells are already multiplying in in a way that's not orderly. It's essentially, that's the definition of cancer. Right. When cells replicate in not an or orderly fashion. So, um, you know, once you're in that condition, anything that's going to push you further towards that end of the spectrum, you want to remove. So. Right, right. Um, I guess I want to also ask you about age. I think that this is something maybe you and I have discussed just briefly um, off air. The risk of being diagnosed before and after menopause varies greatly, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes. Um, typically, the risk of breast cancer increases with age. Okay. So a woman who's 40 is the absolute risk is much less than a woman who's 70, simply due to age. Of course, you have menopause in there as a factor, um, and you have exposure. You know, as the longer you live, you have more exposure to chemicals, pesticides, poor diet, lack of exercise, alcohol, smoking, all the other things right. that are important. Right. Well, that's let, yeah. Okay. So let's stick with the with the alcohol factor because mm -hmm. you know we hear. On one hand, all of these studies, you know, touting the benefits of a glass of red wine every day. And then we hear, well, no amount of alcohol is safe. And then further, we find out that there's a link now, again, correct me if I'm wrong, between alcohol and the risk of developing breast cancer. Yes. Yeah, so studies have shown that alcohol in excess of one glass per day. Um, so essentially, if you're a woman and you're drinking two glasses or more per day, can increase your risk of breast cancer by about 20 percent. Hmm. So when we look at women and alcohol intake in general, um, the, guide, the clinical guidelines that are based on scientific research are that women should only have, if they're going to partake in al of alcohol, uh, one drink or less per day. Hmm. And, and you, you touched on exercise, not just for breast cancer, but virtually every other chronic disease out yes. there. I mean, it's, it's a super important role, but specifically to breast cancer, how important is exercise here? Very, very important. So um, with any cancer diagnosis um, or, or prevention of cancer, exercise is key. Um, it helps to maintain weight or reduce weight. And also not even weight as an issue, but reducing um, the, per the percent of body fat. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's really important. So the studies that I'm most familiar with, they show that if you have at least two to three hours a week, so that's approximately 120 to 180 minutes of exercise per week. So if you um, take that down into more um, doable chunks, right. you know, it would be 30, 30 minutes a day or less. Right. Even. So, um, you know, if you have that level of exercise, your risk of, of can breast cancer development um, can be reduced by 30 to 50%. If it's four, four hours or more a week of exercise, your risk is cut in half, which that, is incredible. That is significant. That is significant. So when we're talking about exercise, if you're talking to a patient and you're saying, hey, you can cut your risk by a third, a half mm -hmm. if you do this, what type of exercise are you telling them to do? Are you saying go out and get a gym membership or are you saying just walk out the front door and take a stroll around the neighborhood? 
I think it depends on each patient because some patients have not been exercising at all. Other patients are more active to begin with at baseline. But I think walking is a wonderful exercise. And um, that's something that I recommend to all my patients. Uh, you can do it anytime, anywhere. Of course, you need a pair of sneakers, but you know, it's small investment. So I think um, walking a half hour a day would be a great start. I love it when doctors sing the praises of just walking. You know, everybody thinks that you do need to go out and get that gym membership, and that's what you need to do, and that's, nothing could be further from the truth. And when I lost the weight, that's what I did. Like, I just walked on my lunch break every day. And so even though breast cancer wasn't a factor for me, luckily, you know, obviously the health benefits that came with it were significant. You know, not only was I losing weight, I mean, we're talking like my numbers, you know, cholesterol came down, blood pressure came down, you know, it was just phenomenal. So I think that that is such an important prescription for breast cancer and everything else. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's really important that, um, that people keep that in mind. That's just my personal opinion. Thank you. I agree. Um, We've talked a lot about meat, but I also want to ask you about dairy as well. Have there been studies comparing the the association of the of risk of developing breast cancer and dairy consumption? There have been, and dairy, as has been shown for many other chronic diseases, is not our friend. Um, so you know, we we see that. Most breast cancers are what we call estrogen receptor positive, and cow's milk, for example, has estrogen because the cow, the mother cow produces estrogen to help as part of the milk production cycle, and that is um, conferred into the milk. And then when we drink the milk, we are essentially drinking estrogen or eating a slice of estrogen with cheese which is not a really appetizing way to think about it when we put it that way. Mm. Um, however, we do find about a 50% increased risk of breast cancers, particularly estrogen receptor positive breast cancers in those who consume milk products or dairy products in general, but specifically fluid milk. 50, uh, specifically fluid milk? Yeah. Okay, so fluid milk comes with a little bit more risk, it appears, than yeah. eating cheese or something else with it, dairy in it? It does, and I'm not sure why. Um, I'm not sure um, researchers know why that is, but that is what our studies have found. That's interesting. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. I would like to know more about that. Yeah. I'm going to make a note to look that up. Um, I, I want to ask you kind of you're you're a parent you're a mother i mean and we, we just talked about one in eight women i mean such a staggering number mm -hmm. uh, forget being a physician like mm -hmm. is there part of of you that is just you're almost worried like there's a ticking time bomb inside with, with numbers that are i mean that substantial i think I think there is a ticking time bomb if you are not paying attention to dietary factors and lifestyle factors. However, I want to tell our listeners, and this is really important, that cancer is a really scary thing to learn about, to hear about, to be confronted with. But we are not powerless. We meaning you, me, our listeners, humans in general. We have the ability to control the outcome we can make it better than it might have been if we did not do these dietary and lifestyle factors. So we have a lot of power that I think we all tend to forget because we all get really scared when we hear the the C word, cancer. Right, right. So I want to make sure that we all know this. 
I like that positive thought. And, and here's one that, that popped into my head just a second ago as, as you were talking. And I was like, okay, well, you know, we've got more than, what, 20% risk of, of mortality here with the mm-hmm. breast cancer diagnosis. But that means that there's an 80% survival risk right. as well. Right. There is, there's an 80, 80% of people do survive, and the five-year survival each year is lengthening, you know, based upon um, good diet and lifestyle factors, good um, chemotherapy and radiation and other regimens, early detection. Um, there's there's a lot of factors. Um, we haven't talked about this a whole lot yet, but there's also just the general statistics are that only 5 to 10% of cancers, of breast cancers in particular, are um, genetically mediated. So okay. what that means is 80 or 95, so 90, 90 to 95% of cancers are not because of genes. Right. So that means we have the ability to at least make a dent in them to improve them. Yeah, okay, so now we're talking about epigenetics. Uh, fascinating topic. So uh, why, why is it, I guess as a physician, why, why is it that you think that people kind of overlook that and, again, forget that they have the power to control a lot of this? You know, if you're talking about only 5%, you know, is, is tied to genetics, that other 95% barely gets spoken about, really. I think a lot of physicians, unfortunately, and other healthcare professionals are not trained in looking at diet and lifestyle factors and, and prevention. You know, we are really highly trained in diagnosis of something and what to do once a person is diagnosed. For example, what do we do once you are diagnosed with breast cancer. You know, what is the path, the clinical treatment path that you go forward on? But what to eat? What can you eat before you're diagnosed? Once you're diagnosed? What other lifestyle factors, a little bit that we've touched upon, can you do? You know, that's not really talked about. And a lot of it is, unfortunately, lack of education. However, this is changing. There is a tide coming with the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and the specialty of lifestyle medicine in healthcare professionals being trained in prevention and once diagnosed, what can we do other than medication or chemo or radiation in the case of cancer treatment? Sure, sure. Um, For somebody that does have that strong genetic component, their grandmother had it, their aunts had it, their mother had it, Mm -hmm. a woman comes in and and visits you as a patient and you know that, What, what advice do you give her as far as, you know, being proactive about trying to prevent this? And I would assume then that it's it's even more important for somebody that does have that genetic component, even though it only accounts for a 5% bump, to really make sure that they adhere to all of these preventative techniques that, that we're talking about, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there is genetic testing. There's BRCA or BRCA1 and 2 testing um, in certain populations, such as Ashkenazi Jews, um, that is a real issue. So um, often, you know, we will... Um, you know, if somebody has a strong family history, we will refer them to, um, at least in the D.C. area, Georgetown or um, Johns Hopkins, um, the the hospitals that have the breast centers that can do this kind of testing. However, I think it's doubly, triply important in those patients who have a lot of family history of breast cancer to be paying attention to limiting their alcohol, to lowering body fat percentage, maintaining a stable weight or losing weight if needed. Um, Fiber. We haven't talked about that. So increasing fiber to about 40 to 45 grams per day. And I'll tell you why. So, And also, uh, uh, before I start on that, is a low-fat plant-based diet. Right. So 
fiber. So why is that important? It's because when um, estrogen is produced in the ovaries and then is distributed throughout the body in the circulation, and then it gets recycled. So people don't realize this. So it goes to the liver. It's um, complexed with some substances, conjugated essentially, and then it goes to the GI tract for elimination. So depending on your diet, so if you have a high-fat, low-fiber diet, so a standard American diet, the gut bacteria actually change to develop enzymes that will take that estrogen that's conjugated or in that complex and cleave it or um, dis- disassemble the package so that estrogen can go circulate again in the body. So that actually, depending on what you eat, the gut bacteria change and are more able to essentially keep that estrogen in your body rather than eliminating it in the GI tract through your, through your bowel movements. So... Eating a high-fat, low-fiber diet can actually increase your risk of breast cancer, and that's what studies have found. Gut microbiome. It, gut it, microbiome is fascinating. Increasingly, it seems like it all comes back to gut microbiome. Yeah. I, and that really is – I had no idea. I had no idea. You have just officially blown my mind. And I would assume that somebody else who's listening right now is like, wow, that's a whole lot of knowledge that I just did not have. Wow, and this is all this is all very um, this is all very cutting edge knowledge. So more and more is coming out about the gut microbiome, but that's why fiber is so important. And I know on other shows, um, you and your guests have talked about fiber at length. But yeah. just another plug for fiber. So you know the things I would tell. So going back to this patient who's at risk of breast cancer or worried about breast cancer, yeah. I would say make sure you're exercising two to three hours a week, if not more. Um, Limiting alcohol intake, low-fat, plant, low-fat plant-based diet, um, fiber intake, 45, 40 to 45 grams, water intake, so 64 ounces per day. Water is very, very important to all our metabolic activity in the body. It helps um, keep our organs working the, the way it should, um, helps to eliminate toxins, so that's really important as well. Hmm. Okay. And then limit, if you can, you know, try to buy organic, the um, dirty dozen, like look at the list and try to buy organic of those, there's the clean 15, which you can buy conventional, you know, try not to have, be, have exposure to Roundup and other pesticides sure. and use BPA-free plastics right. and those kinds of things. Right. Um, uh, so when you're talking about exercising two to three hours a week, that, that doesn't seem like a lot. And I'm curious if somebody took, you know, the steps to, I'd say, just use the restroom on a different floor or start taking the stairs instead of the elevator. Would those little changes, those little tiny movements add or, or count toward that two to three hours because they're just being more active? Or is that just a, a good idea in general? I think it's a good idea in general. I would absolutely count those into the general movement. People often quote 10,000 steps a day. Sure. Now our iPhones and Androids and smartphones, they all count our steps. Yes. I realized this recently. I said, oh, I didn't know my device was counting steps. <laughs> Ooh, big brother is watching. Yeah, but it's not really, <laughs> you know, if we look at it in manageable chunks, I think, you know, if you look at, oh my goodness, three hours a week, I can't do that. I work full time. I have a kid or, you know, whatever it is that you're um, obstacles or barriers may be, challenges may be. But if you say, you know, I'm going to do 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day um, of walking, like you don't have to buy a gym membership if you don't want to start there. Right, right. 
And I think that taking your lunch break and walking is, mm-hmm. is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another one of the tips that I used. And here's another one that, that I throw out to people, and they, they seem real surprised by it, is typically in an office building, uh, especially one that's maybe not in a big me- a metropolitan area like Washington where, where they have a big parking lot. Mm-hmm. You park in the last space in that parking lot, and so you have to walk that distance to the door. I did that over the course of a week at my office, you know, to and fro, and I added it all up. It Mm -hmm. was a little bit more than a mile every single week. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that and you add that up over the course of the year, nobody's working 52 weeks out of the year. Let's be honest. We've got vacation. So let's Mm -hmm. figure you're there 48 weeks. I mean, that's 48 miles a year. Yeah. That's not small. That's That's significant. And the other thing is I encourage my patients, if they're able to, to either borrow a dog from their neighbor or adopt a dog because a dog needs to be walked. Um, Cats walk too, some of them on leash, but dogs definitely. So I think that's been a fantastic way for some patients to really see um, those miles add up, as you say. Yeah. I love the idea. Just go knock on the neighbor's door. <laughs> I think they're going to ask for a cup of sugar or something and know, hi, can I borrow your dog? <laughs> You'll be doing them a favor. I'm sure they'll love it. Um, I wanted to add one one thing because you had asked me a little bit earlier about um, you know being a parent. Yes. And I'm a parent of a young daughter. She's yes. four and a half. And um, you know, just I think in general about chronic disease prevention, cancer prevention. Unfortunately, in our family, there is a lot of cancer. So it's something mm-hmm. that's at my uh, the forefront of my mind. So, you know, one of the things are, I came across the Shanghai Women's Health Study. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of interesting statistics about in childhood and adolescence, if you um, have your, your child, your girls, eat soy, so soy products like tofu and um, tempeh and, and things like that. So you may be cutting, helping to cut their risk of breast cancer later in life by 30, 40, even 50 percent. By introducing that in adolescence. Yes. And the reason is because um, in adolescence, when uh, during puberty, when women, when young girls breast tissue develops, um, it's often very immature and very sensitive to hormones and chemicals. So if you're giving them soy, soy has phytoestrogens. So phytoestrogens are not estrogens, but they're sort of weak imitators. And what they do is they essentially um, block the receptors for human estrogen, hmm. and then they don't cause the ill effects of the human estrogen. Um, but soy intake has not been shown to cause breast cancer. That's a common myth. Um, there's been multiple studies on that. In fact, uh, in breast cancer survivors, soy intake has been shown to um, ward off recurrence of breast cancer, and um, it has not been shown to lead to early early puberty or you know other reproduct- female reproductive po- problems. Um, it's actually been shown to, um, if if eaten in its whole form, let's say sure. like edamame, tofu, you know this kind sure. of thing. Um, processed soy. I don't know if there's a whole lot of research out there like veggie burgers and tofu hot dogs. Right, and I'm right. talking more about whole whole soy products, I think, are safe. Um, and the research backs that, backs that up. Is that, uh, I guess, edamame, is that something then that finds uh, its way onto your daughter's plate? 
at this point? Yeah, she really like she re- really likes edamame. She likes tofu. Um, we had some last night. So nice. yeah, nice. and also um, just other foods in general. I want to just sneak in there sure. are um, cruciferous vegetables and um, colored like yellow orange vegetables. So they have high beta carotene, and then cruciferous vegetables help in the elimination of excess estrogen from the body. Mm. And vegetables also have fiber in it. Keep and they that, do. Keep that fiber That's up. That's right. We keep couldn't get away with mentioning without mentioning fiber. Lee Crosby would be so proud of you right now. <laughs> she, she's just upstairs. I'll, I will shoot her a text as soon as uh, as we're through here. Um, before we wrap this up, what else should we be talking about before we take this segment home? What have we left off the plate? I know there's a lot to this. And, and God knows we probably could do four, five, six, a dozen shows here. But is there anything else that you want to focus on today? I think to say, just reiterate again that the way we lead our lives, our diet, our lifestyle really makes a big difference. There's been a there's a lot of research, epidemiologic studies about immigrants who um, recently immigrated from Japan, Korea, um, China, you know, other Asian countries, for example, as compared to Native American Native. not Native Americans, but people who are living in America, born and brought up here. And the rate of breast cancer in the home countries is very low. And then these um, immigrants move here and they start eating the standard American diet and the rates shoot up fourfold even in some cases. So, you know, it's not their genes didn't change when they came over from their home country. So, you know, what changed is the environment. So, yes, epigenetics is very, very important. And I want to leave our listeners with the information that you can do something that you're not powerless against cancer. I love that. I love that. Let's leave it. And and you said, I mean, reduce the risk by up to half just mm-hmm. with lifestyle factors. Mm-hmm. I mean, that half, mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. You prescribed walking and it just so happens that you have a, a walk coming up, uh, Walk with the Doc. Uh, talk yes. to me a little bit about what's what's happening here. Yes, yeah, so Walk with the Doc is a national program started by Dr. David Sebgear, and he's a cardiologist in Ohio, and he started this walk as a way to be able to um, do something for his patient community and to um, give back and to promote something healthy, which is walking as a form of exercise. Mm-hmm. And um, he started simply by telling his patients, and now it's grown to 400 plus chapters across the U.S. And um, myself and another doctor, Dr. Aruna Nathan, have um, in the Kensington, Wheaton, Maryland area, have started a chapter. And it's about one hour. Um, It's a one mile paved trail. So you can go as far as you'd like, or you can do the whole hour. Um, You can go out and back. And it's a beautiful uh, public park in Montgomery County here in, in the D.C. metro area. So I invite all our listeners to come out and um, if you'd like more information, you can, um, now that I'm on Twitter, yes. you can reach out to me at Dr. Asha Sub. So D R A S H A S, like Sam, U B, on Twitter. And I'm happy to um, give you further information. There's also more information on the Walk with a Doc website um, for Wheaton, Maryland. I can provide you, Chuck, with that information to post. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll, we'll tweet that out uh, and we'll put it up on our website um, and obviously follow at Dr. Asha Sub. Uh, thank you for the follow, by the way. That, that was very nice of you. I saw that over the weekend. Yeah, no, it's great. I, I think uh, it's been fun. I just literally got on Twitter very recently and it's been really great to follow everything that's 
um, goes on. A lot of great information on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a regular news resource. It really is. Yeah. Um, so w- when the people are out there with you, like you're just kind of fielding questions and. Yeah. So it's um it's a pretty um relaxed kind of format. So um we will start at eleven. It'll be about an hour. It's going to be every third Saturday, um, and we will um, do a three to five minute short talk on a health topic, and then we walk with whoever shows up and it might be just one person and it might be a hundred people we don't know but we'll see dr supermanian thank you so much thank you always a pleasure the Physicians Committee, we are always on the cutting edge of the link between nutrition and medicine, the link between health and diets. And so to stay on the cutting edge, we have to do a fair amount of research. We have to conduct our fair amount of studies. And we are running one particular study right now that I find just completely intriguing and fascinating. And that is a study on rheumatoid arthritis. And so I wanted to invite Dr. Hanna Kaliova and clinical research specialist and nurse Melissa Busta on today to talk a little bit about this RA study. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Dr. Kaliova, let me start with this, this particular RA study. What is it that you're looking for? What are you testing? Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune disease that affects about 1.5 million people in the U.S. And um, it affects your hands and wrists and knees and other joints in your body, leading to pain, inflammation, and permanent damage to the joints. Now, there are some medications that may relieve the symptoms, but don't address the underlying cause of the disease. Now, research has shown that some foods may be beneficial for rheumatoid arthritis, and some uh, foods may be harmful. And, you know, uh, encouraging uh, the inflammatory process. So what we're testing is the power of foods to reduce the pain and inflammation in people with rheumatoid arthritis using a simple diet, using a vegan diet. I guess I could ask why, but I think that the the better question is how debilitating is RA for somebody who's been diagnosed with it, who's living with it? Uh, You know, within a few years, uh, the disease may uh, lead to a permanent damage to your joints. Um, So you might not be able to do um, anything with your hands. So it might be fairly debilitating. I guess that is the answer to the question of why then. Why study exactly. this? And you said 1.5 million people have this? Exactly. That's in the U.S. That, yes. that means that the three of us, you know, we could probably count on two hands people that we know mm-hmm. um, that, that have this. Well, you guys work with patients all day. Um But, Melissa, let me turn to you. I want to ask you this. So somebody calls up, and they're chosen to participate in the study. What is that process going to be like for them? Yeah, so we'll be taking participants on a 36-week journey. We'll be testing out a supplement versus a low-fat vegan diet, excuse me, with an elimination component to that diet. So um, qualified participants will get a weekly support class where we'll be doing cooking demonstrations, uh, taste testings, um, they'll also they'll also get um, free lab work. Um, they're going to get their microbiome analyzed. Uh, they'll also be meeting with a rheumatologist and one-on-one consultations with dietitians. And how long is this study? Thirty-six weeks total, and it'll be starting in January. Okay, thirty-six weeks. Okay, so that's that's a lot of free medical attention that you're getting there. That's that's a pretty good benefit. 
It is. It is nearly nearly a whole year. <laughs> um, so suppose somebody's hearing this. They have RA themselves, or they have a friend or a family member who has it, and they want to pass this study along. What is it that you're looking for in terms of qualifying for this? Who's the ideal participant? So if you have rheumatoid arthritis and if you live in the D.C. area to be able to come to the classes and are at least 18 years old, um, then call our study number, 855-788-3918. That number again? 855-788-3918. Very interesting study. I look forward to hearing the results. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Asha Subramanian, and thank you for listening this week. You know, it is such an important message that we're trying to get out. You know, research continues to point to the link between health and food. Simply put, you put good in and you get good out. And to put it even more simply... Think about how many fewer tears would be shed if we just ate more fruits and vegetables and then cut out meat and dairy. Yeah, there's more science to it, but just at its simplest, more good, less bad. And that is what the science continues to show. And more so than just with breast cancer. We're talking about ovarian cancer, colon cancer, prostate cancer, heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, Alzheimer's, obesity, cholesterol, so many more could go on and on and on. So here's some homework. If you liked what you heard, you're interested, and you want to learn more, well, we have a ton of resources up on PCRM.org. Just head over to the exam room page there, the podcast page, where we have a list of all of the studies that we've referenced on the show today. Plus, you're going to have tips to start your journey if you haven't yet taken that first step toward health. And if you have, well, we encourage you then to share that information with a friend or or with a loved one so that they too can learn that plant-based is far more than just a buzzword. And speaking of sharing, while we're in that sharing spirit, please also share the show with your friends and your family as well. Clue them in on what it is that you've been listening to. And if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. Give it a nice five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere podcasts are available. That, my friend, is where you will find the exam room by the Physicians Committee. And if you would be so kind as to also leave a nice comment, I would be ever so grateful. And as a last bit of housekeeping, a little social media plug here, a couple of likes and follows for you uh, at PCRM on Twitter uh, and at Physicians Committee on Instagram. If you need more resources, more inspiration, more news, those are two great outlets. And also, I am at Chuck Carroll, WLC, on both Twitter and Instagram. That's Chuck Carroll with two R's and two L's and the WLC, as always, standing for Wait loss champion. Again, for Dr. Neil Barnard and Dr. Asha Supermanian, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll, and I thank you so very much for listening to The Exam Room, brought to you by the Physicians Committee.